do the promises of God still excite you? When you come across that, do you just still get excited? Yeah, there's that song, the thrill is gone. Oh, may that never be said of us. I remember when I first started dating Brian, um, Brian could not put his Bible down. He just, he would bring it over and why he waited for me, he'd just have it open and he would just be reading it. Now, Brian um, is legally blind without his glasses on and I didn't even know he wore glasses for the first three months we dated. So he'd be over there and his nose would be right in the Bible. And I remember my mom saying, is it all right to interrupt him when he's doing that? Because my mom loved to talk and converse with Brian. I'm like, yeah, that's just fine. But Brian would look up and he'd say, oh my goodness, listen to this. And he would read a promise in the word of God. One of his favorite promises was John 14, 12, when Jesus said, and greater works will you do because I go to my father. And Brian, Brian used to look at me and go, what is greater? What are those greater works? Look at what God has promised us through Jesus. And the way that Brian would pour over his Bible and extract these incredible promises, it really provoked me. Because I had grown up in a Christian home. I had grown up with the promises of God, and I had become complacent about those promises. Like, oh, yeah, I know that one. Uh I remember I memorized that one when I was four in Sunday school. And I had just become like that, you know, Bible expert, Cheryl Cheryl Smith, Broderson. You know, I just... I knew the Bible Um, because I had heard them over and over again. Somehow the thrill was not hitting me like it was hitting Brian. I, I wanted that thrill back in my life. I wanted to be thrilled again by the, the promises of God. And I began to pray, Oh God, restore unto me the joy of my salvation, the joy of getting these promises. And so I wanted, to, I wanted to meet him on those dates with just as many promises as he was going to meet me. In fact, I was ready to get into a promise competition. Who's got the better promises? Who's got more of the promises? I love meeting new Christians who are like, did you know that the Bible says this? And you're like, yes, is that so wonderful? I also love meeting seasoned Christians who have not lost the thrill of the promises of the Bible. Who can, you can say Bible promise and they'll go, hmm, yep, 1972. I remember July 1st when the Lord gave me that and when he fulfilled it. On You're like, what? There's a story here? My Aunt Nisi never stopped thrilling at the promises of God. Oh, you know, you would say, oh, I just read this in the Bible. Our hands would shoot up. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah. Let's just take a moment. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this promise. And she just right then, she'd lay claim to it. Like, I hope you have another one for you. Because she just took it. She just claimed it right then and there. It was just so awesome. Um, Not to call out someone in this fellowship, but Andrea Colin just loves the promises of God. It, you know, when we're proofing and editing the lessons, we'll, we'll go, oh, let's just do verses, you know, three through four. She's like, oh, no, please, insert five. 
And maybe add six, because six is so good. We're like, Andrea, we're keeping it to two promises. And she'll be like, well, can't we give them a little bit more? And we're like, no. You know, but we're so mean. But I I love the way that she loves the promises of God. And she hasn't lost the thrill or the glory or the joy. Because these are absolutely real. These are our heritage. I don't have much money to pass on to my children. They know. They've just been celebrating their birthdays. And I don't have a lot of that. And you know what I found with money? They spend it and it's gone. You know, I I buy my daughter presents for her birthday and my son-in-law always returns them and, and gets the money for them to pay a bill. That's kind of discouraging. You know, I try to get things like, I'm sorry, but this can't be returned. It was the last one. You know, all that, everything I can give them on earth can be stolen, can be taken away, can be exchanged, can be, you know, they can get money for it that will just fade away. But the heritage of faith I can give to them, the promises of God are theirs forever. I can give them the promises of God. I can text them. I can Instagram them. I can snail mail them. Remember that? I can email them. I can call them up and tell them. I can tell them in person, this is your heritage. This is yours. I've told you this before, but I have a specific promise that God gave me for each one of my children that I asked for. And I pray it over them and I tell them, this is yours. This is yours because God gave it to me. I claim it for you and I pray it over you every day. This is the heritage. This is what I can pass on. This is my treasure on earth are the promises of God. These are my, this is my treasury. This is what I put in my heart is the promises of God. You know, the, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Oh, I want my heart to be so filled with the promises of God that when I get to talking, that the promises of God just spill out on everybody. It's my claim to God's goodness. It's my claim to what he has said in his word. It's my surety. It's my comfort. It's my assurance. And it's my strength. It's my strength. I have had times where I didn't think I could put one foot in front of the other. And a promise of God will come to me. And I'll know I can face tomorrow because I've got this promise of God that things will not always be like they are. Here we have this great heritage, this wealth of promises but we sometimes become complacent. We stop searching them out. We even lose our desire for them. We're we're not hungry for the promises of God. We neglect them because other things come pressing in. We no longer esteem them. We're no longer repeating them. We're no longer putting them up on our walls. They're not that important to us. We fail to move into them. 
In fact, sometimes we don't even know them. And if we don't know them, we can't lay claim to them. We never fully possess them because we are satisfied with the least. Like, this is enough. We're satisfied with a spoonful when God wants to give us a gallon. We do not seek their fullness. In Joshua 15 through Joshua 18, we observe a contrast between those who fully seek the promises of God and possess them and those who become negligent concerning the promises of God. A contrast between those who embrace the promises of God and those who did not esteem them. And as we look at these two different groups of people, it's going to be a time of soul searching. We're going to ask ourselves, what is keeping me from the thrill of the promises of God? Have I become complacent? Have I become cold? Have I become laissez-faire? And how, how do I have the thrill of the promises of God restored to me? That when I hear them, I want to throw my hands up and say, Hallelujah. Glory to God. We need to ask God to inflame in us a desire to know God's promises, seek out God's promises, desire God's promises, claim God's promises, and live in and by the promises of God. This book, this Bible, it is a book of promise. It promises God's favor. It promises us God's divine work on our behalf. It is the promise of prosperity in the midst of adversity. You know, I'm in the story of Joseph right now in my personal devotions. You know, Joseph, who is hated by his brothers, Joseph, who is sold into slavery by his brothers, Joseph, who is in Potiphar's house serving as a slave and lied about and slandered, then thrown into prison, forgotten, neglected in prison, and yet over and over again, it says this. And God was with him, and the favor of God was upon him, and the Lord blessed him, and everybody saw God on Joseph. It wasn't a deliverance from adversity. It was in the midst of adversity, God's blessing. In the midst of adversity, God's favor. In the midst of adversity, God's presence. That even Joseph said, well, I'm a slave in Potiphar's house, but man, the Lord is so with me. That's the promises of God. And of course, we have the promise of everlasting or abundant life, which is not just a quantity of days, but a quality of days. And these promises are ours because of Jesus Christ. Not because we're good, not because we've earned it, but because Jesus fulfilled all the requirements of the law and the prophets. He, who is the Son of God, became a Son of Man, forever entwining his divine life with the seed of mankind. 
He lived a righteous life on our behalf. And he died an ignoble death on our behalf that we might receive what belonged to him alone, all the promises of God. And Jesus willed that these promises might be ours through his life and death and resurrection. So they are all accessible. They are all available because of Jesus. So what is holding us back? What is keeping us from the thrill? Perhaps you're like so many that when you hear about the promise of God, you start to qualify it immediately. What, what if I'm, I'm seeking that promise um, and it's not for me? What if I'm asking for something that's in the Bible that's not for me? Well, if it's in the Bible, it's for you. Done deal. Because every promise is yours through Christ Jesus. Now, I will say this. Your interpretation of how God will fulfill it might be off. But God's going to fulfill it. The way God's going to work it out in your life is going to look totally different than what you thought. You know, as women, we're so controlling. We are. I, I, well, okay, I'll speak for myself. I am so controlling. And God, may, God married me off to a man that's totally uncontrollable. You know, I know when I get in the car the route I want to take to any given place I'm going. I already know the route. That man defies my route every time I'm in the car. It's almost as if I say right and he's like left. You know, he just, it, it, sometimes he gets us so lost. But he's like, you're not getting irritable, are you? No, I love being 15 minutes late for everything that goes on in life. But you know, God has a different way than how we see it. He takes different routes. Have you noticed that? Like if I was going to the promised land, I would have gone north and gone across that land bridge. He's like, no, I'm going to take you through the middle of the Red Sea. It's going to be cool. But I don't want to go through the middle of the Red Sea. I'd rather, I prefer the land bridge. He's like, I know what you prefer, but we're going to go through the Red Sea because I'm going to give you such a story. I'm going to give you a testimony. And that's what God does. And sometimes even with that Southern accent, you never know. And also the placement factor of of when it's going to happen. I mean, God gives us a promise and we're like, okay, like 10 minutes, five minutes, three minutes. He's like, five years, 10 years, 15 years. But it'll happen. I was reading um, these quotes by Hudson Taylor the other day. And he said, there are three steps to God's work in our life. First, it's impossible. Second, we're in it. Third, it's done. God does it all. But he does it his way and in his time and in the place. You know, we think it's going to happen here, Costa Mesa. And God says, no, it's going to happen in Santa Ana. God's going to do it his way. By the way, this is Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa in Santa Ana. You figure that one out. In Joshua 15... We see that the tribe of Judah has settled the whole southern area of the promised land. To Judah belongs the greatest portion of the promised land. Why? Because 85-year-old Caleb got so excited about all that was available, he just kept laying claim to it. 
He was just like, well, if you don't want it, I'll take it. He drives out the three giants who are still in the land, Shishai, Ahiman, Talmai. And the fact that their names were given, the names of these giants, shows their prominence in Kirjath Arba. They intimidated everybody else, but not Caleb. Caleb then renames the land Hebron. And this is directly connected to the promise God gave Abraham. Because this is the name that Abraham gave to this area. And it's as if Caleb is reliving and claiming the promise of his great-great-grandfather. It has happened. It is the amen. It has been done. This is the only area that Israel or Abraham ever owned. This is the only area that Abraham ever owned. Because in Hebron is the cave of Machpelah that Abraham bought from Ephron in Genesis chapter 23. This is the cave. This is the land where all the patriarchs are buried. And now Caleb has possession of it. This is where Abraham and Sarah This is where Isaac and Rebekah, this is where Jacob and Leah are buried. This is the claim, and now it's renamed. This is the investment of Abraham. And Caleb gives this land to his fellow tribe members. From there, Caleb advances to Kirjath Sefer. And perhaps Caleb is feeling his age, because at this point he gives an incentive. Whoever attacks Kirjath Sefer and takes it to him, I will give Aksa, my daughter, as wife. When we were in groups today, um, our leaders meeting, Cynthia um, Izel was bringing up the fact that this is one of the best ways ever to get the perfect son-in-law. An incentive like that, then you're assured that your son-in-law is courageous, a man full of faith and totally rehearsed in the promises of God. Here is somebody who wants all that God is giving. And we find out that Othniel takes the challenge. Othniel is Caleb's nephew, his younger brother's son. He takes the challenge. He also is enthusiastic about the promises of God. In Judges 3.10, we read that the spirit of the Lord is with him. And later on in the history of Israel, when Israel begins to fall into apostasy, which gives way to oppression because they fail to drive out the Canaanites in the land, it is Othniel that rises up and defeats the oppressors of Israel and then rules Israel for 40 years. So here in this passage, Othniel takes Kirjath Sefer, he conquers it, he possesses it, he becomes prominent in Israel. Othniel does not lose his inheritance, but he remains committed to God and God's promises. He marries Aksa, Caleb's daughter. And and Caleb's daughter, Aksa, this young woman, she says to her husband, hmm, I know that we have a field. It was a gift of her father as a dowry, this field. But she said, we need springs. We need to water. And I love the way 
that it refers to these springs as a blessing. We need more than just the field. We need the blessing. She knows the land. She surveyed it. And she knows that although the land is good, that a field without springs is insufficient. So she goes to her father and she dismounts from her donkey. And what she asks for is a blessing. Father, give me a blessing. You've given me this land, but now give me a blessing to this land. Give me a blessing since you have given me land in the south. Give me also springs of water. Her request is granted. She has persuaded her father. But oh, how she's persuaded her father. He does not just give her the upper springs. But he is so blessed by the fact that she's asked. That she loves the land. That he gives her the upper and lower springs as well. Oxa is commendable. She knows where the springs are. She knows what she needs to be productive in the land. She wants more than just a field. She wants a blessing. She is not content with just a field, but she wants springs as well. And because of her desire, she goes to her father. She shows respect, but she asks not just for springs, but for his blessing. Caleb is honored by her request. She is her father's daughter. And in response, he gives her a double blessing. God, our heavenly father, desires for us to ask for the springs. In Jeremiah 2, verse 13, God talks about a grave ill that his people have done. He said, they have not come to me, the fountain of living water, but instead they have dug out cisterns for themselves that can hold no water. God wants us to ask for the water. We read in John chapter seven, that on the great day of the feast, when they would symbolize the water coming out of the rock in the wilderness, the priest would, and they pour it out on the, the steps called beautiful, that Jesus stood in the midst of that assembly and he cried out, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and out of his innermost being will come forth a fountain of living water springing into eternal life. God wants us to desire more than just the field. It's not enough just to read your Bible. You need the spring of the Holy Spirit inside you because John said this he spoke of the Holy Spirit that was not yet given. It is the dynamic duo of God's word and the Holy Spirit that brings the word application, that makes the word come alive in our lives. And God wants us to come. In fact, Jesus tells us we're to come to the Father. And if as parents, we know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will God give the Holy Spirit to those that ask? As a good father, it's a good gift. We need 
the, the springs. We are not to settle for just being saved or even just to having the Bible in our possession, but we are to pursue the blessing and the promises of God. Because what happens when we have the blessing and the promises of God in the midst of adversity, whether it's at a job that's miserable or whether it's in a prison of our circumstances, everyone else can see the favor of God like they saw it on Joseph's life, resting on our life. And when the baker and the butler were in trouble, as we read in Genesis, and they're in prison with Joseph, they seek out Joseph's wisdom, the interpretation of dreams. They seek it out from Joseph. Why? Because they see the favor of God on Joseph. The prison, uh, the guard of the prison puts Joseph in charge of the whole prison because he knows he's trustworthy. He knows that he's still upright, has integrity, even though he's in this prison. He's different than everybody else. You see, God wants to give us the blessing. He wants us to ask for the blessing. He wants us to walk in his favor because even when we don't see it, others do. This is our heritage. AXA is an example to us of the divine desire we are to have for God's blessing and promise. Do you pray, God bless me. I want your blessing. I don't want to live without your blessing. Remember in Numbers chapter 6, the priests were to put the blessing on the people. The Lord bless you. Why? Because he's a blessing God. Because he wants to bless his people. You know, I feel bad asking God for a blessing. Really? Then I'll take it. I want more of it. I want as much as I can. Caleb, as the leader of Judah, inspires both his personal family and clan to take all the promised territory of God. It's great. It's vast. But he takes the majority of the promised land for not just his own tribe, but for the other tribes of Israel. In other words, he says, if you won't claim it, if you won't fight for it, then I'll fight for it and I'll give it to you. Reminds me of being at a birthday party when I was eight years old. Um, I was raised as a poor girl in kind of a wealthy area. And I remember being at a birthday party and this little girl was getting a bubble gum machine. I had begged for like two years for a bubble gum machine. I just thought it was great. You know, you get this really good bubble gum and you save pennies at the same time. It's like earning money while chewing gum. It just seemed like a perfect investment for an eight-year-old. And I begged and I begged and I used to see it. There used to be a toy store on 17th Street that it was too expensive for my parents. But I would walk by it and just look in the window and they had a bubble gum machine in the window. It was colorful. It was, you know, that's when it used to be like iron on the bottom, you know, not these plastic things. And I just would just beg and beg. And I'm at this birthday party and she's opening her presents like going, oh, hmm, hmm. And I'm looking at him like, if you don't want them, I think you can get a tax write-off from my dad's church if you give them to the daughter. You know, like I wanted all of her presents. And she was just like, oh, hmm, hmm. And then she opened up the bubble gum machine. And I was like, I was like, you know, I want that bubble gum machine. And she's like, a bubble gum machine? What am I supposed to do with a bubble gum machine? And then I couldn't take it. I'm like, 
I'll take it. I'll take it. You know, and he's like, um, could that little girl who was invited to the party maybe, you know, leave? But I mean, I, I, I look at people that like, yeah, God, you know, so what? Promises of God, you're like, oh, these are sure. These are colorful. These are beautiful. These are an investment. Judah succeeded in every way to drive out the squatters, but in the area of Jerusalem, and I believe there's a purpose in there. It, when it talks about the Jebusites, it doesn't fault Judah for this. Now, the other ones, the Canaanites, they put them to tribute. We're going to see some fault, but not in this one. God reserved the Jebusites for David's conquest, 2 Samuel 5. God had a plan for the Jebusites. And it's interesting that this city had been the place of Melchizedek, king of righteousness that we read about in Genesis 14, 18 through 20. It is not a failure issue, but a timing issue. Also, we read of in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verses 18 through 25, that a Jebusite owned the land where the temple would be built. It's a Jebusite. So I believe it's a timing issue. God promised it, and Caleb was willing to wait on that time, knowing that one of his descendants would inherit all of it. Moving on to chapter 16 and going on to chapter 17, Manasseh and Ephraim, the tribes of Joseph, settle in the northern territory of the promised land, just right up above um, the, the territory of Judah. Half the tribe of Manasseh is settled, as you know, on the eastern side of the Jordan. Ephraim, which is Joshua's tribe, settles the northern part. But there's a lance with Ephraim and driving out the Canaanites that dwelt in Gezer. We read this in Joshua 17, verse 12 through 18. And the tribes of Joseph, which include both Manasseh and Ephraim, allow the Canaanites to stay. They do not put in the extra effort to drive out the Canaanites. Instead, they put them to tribute. Or, in other words, they charge them taxes. In fact, they feel that leaving a little bit of this, the Canaanites, just a little bit, will enhance their lives. They can use them for services and get money from them. And the Canaanites have a determination to stay. It's a lot like sin in our lives. There are those that think a little bit of sin, a little bit of compromise. Actually, they eat you know, just a little tiny bit. And they can use it for their self-enhancement if they just keep this little bit, this provision. And sin, as we know, is determined to stay. Sin is like those extra pounds. You know what I mean? That extra five pounds. I mean, if I, if I said, who wants to lose at least five pounds? I bet every hand would go up, right? See, I already see hands. It's not an altar call. But, you know, everybody has that. But don't you ever feel like they're determined to stay? They're like, no, we like where we've settled in. We're even adding little dimples to your life. You're like, get thee behind me, which it has for me. <laughs> but, you know, those extra, those extra five pounds. And, you know, the only way to get rid of those is by driving it out. And, I mean, it's by effort, right? I mean, it's by starvation and running and exercise and doing just terrible things to your body. That's, that's the only way because it's, it's so determined. But it says that when Nassau was strong, 
when they had the ability, when they could have and should have, when they had multiplied, they still did not drive out the Canaanites. In fact, they intermarried with them. They served the Canaanite gods. And later, these these Canaanites that they put to tribute would put the Israelites to tribute. They would become their oppressors. As Paul said, a little leaven, speaking of sin, leavens the whole bunch. You're never safe with sin. So Ephraim and Manasseh come to Joshua. They complain about their territory being too small. They want more land to accommodate their tribes. Chapter 17, verse 14. Why have you given us but one lot and one portion to inherit, since we are a great people, inasmuch as the Lord has blessed us until now? I love Joshua's answer. Joshua answers them and says that if they want to increase their portion, they will need to go up to the forest country, clear a place for yourself. They're in the land of the Perizzites and the giants, since the mountains of Ephraim are too confined for you. In other words, you're going to have to put in effort. You're going to have to go up. You're going to have to clear a place. You're going to have to fight, again, the Perizzites and the giants. The children of Joseph make excuses. The mountain area is too small. All the Canaanites in the valley have chariots of iron. But Joshua calls them out. Because he said, we're a great people. Joshua said, if you're a great people, and if you have that great power, because you're blessed by God, then you can go up to the mountains. You can cut down. You can take care of those chariots. You can drive out the enemy, although they have chariots and are strong. You see, Ephraim and Manasseh become complacent. They want the land and the territory without any effort. They have allowed the enemy to settle in among them, and they don't want to exert the energy. There are those who want to increase spiritually without effort. They don't want any spiritual warfare, so they don't want to upset the enemy by praying that strongholds be taken down. They don't want to exert the effort to pray. Oh, it takes so long. It's like, oh, you know, I forgot. They don't want the promises. They don't. They want the promises of God simply handed to them. They want them just to happen without seeking God's directives, his instructions, or obedience to God's will. It's called entitlement. They want the trophy without playing the game. And that's not how God works. Now, that might be how T-ball works in these times that we live. Like, well, at least you joined. I remember I was a brownie. I had a brownie troop. My brownie troop was all Jewish, except for Lisa Martinez and me. We were all the only non-Jews. That's why we couldn't do anything on Saturdays. I only realized that in retrospect, you know. I had people with the last name of Jacobs and Jacoby and all these. Now I remember, and now I know. But I remember we were always in trouble. I was a little scared of my Girl Scout troop. So I would just bring the dues to school and have them take it to the brownie meeting for me and never make any of the meetings. And so they flew me up anyway. You know, I advanced in the Girl Scouts because I was the only one who was faithful with their dues. (laughs) But I'm telling you, it was extortion. I was so scared of those girls. I just made whatever they wanted and just didn't show up for the meetings. But I still, you know, I, I I got badges and they never showed up. You know, it's like the entitlement. But sometimes we want to do that with the promises of a God. You know, but we don't even want to pay our dues. We just want the badges. And God says, no, there's directives, there's meetings, (laughs) there's dues. There's a specific way into the promises of God. And it is going to take effort. 
The promises are given us, but they must be claimed. One, by knowing the promises, by asking for the promises, by taking possession or moving into, cutting down, clearing, settling in, driving out the enemy. And when I talk about driving out the enemy, I'm talking about in our own hearts. Driving out all the impediments, the doubt, you know, drive the, the, the doubt of, of dark away. So contrast these men of Manasseh and Ephraim now with the daughters of Zavolt, that guy. You know, I practiced this so I wouldn't do this. Zelophehad. Joshua 17, verses 3 through 6. Zelophehad. These women, these daughters of Zelophad, they wanted a family inheritance. They didn't want their portion simply through marriage. They wanted their own. They wanted their own, something that could belong to them, something that they could pass down to their sons and daughters. Their father, Zelophehad, had died in the wilderness. He was not among those who rebelled against the Lord. He died because he was part of the unbelieving generations. Generation, But his daughters, by contrast, believed the promises of God. They came to Moses, which must have been so intimidating to come to Moses, the lawgiver, the one who had to put a veil over his face because it was so radiant. They went to Moses and they asked for a portion of the promised land because they believed the time would come when they would be in the promised land and they wanted part and parcel because they believed it. So in Numbers 27, 1 through 8, we are told of the bold thing that they did when they went before Moses. It was bold especially for women. It was bold because they requested an inheritance in the land of promise. It was bold because Moses would then inquire of God. And when Moses went to God, God said, these girls are right in what they ask. Allocate them a possession among their brethren. Now these women like Caleb, they now go to Joshua and Eliezer and they remind Joshua and Eliezer of the command that God gave through Moses concerning them and their inheritance. Joshua 17 verse four, the Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance among our brothers. They had not forgotten the promises of God. Therefore, I love this, therefore, because of God's command to Moses, Joshua gave them a portion. Oh, do you realize we have a therefore? We have a therefore. Therefore, because of the command of Moses, but we have a therefore because of the work of Christ. Therefore, because of what Jesus has done. Therefore, because Jesus has opened the door to all the promises of God. Therefore, because Jesus lived a righteous life. Therefore, because Jesus died for my sins. Therefore, because Jesus wills that all the promises of God be mine. God gives them to me. These women, because they wanted a portion, because they boldly asked, like Oxa, bold, their names are mentioned twice in the Bible. Isn't that exciting? I mean, to think, I mean, some of you were given Bible names, But for some reason, Chuck and Kay Smith didn't give any of their children Bible names. Don't you think that's a little strange? I mean, you would think that, I don't know, I'd be named Tirza or Hogla or something. Beautiful. Hepzibah. 
Elizabeth. And there are other ones like Mary. But no, I get Cheryl. Cheryl Lynn. It's like, I can't find that in the Bible. But they could have named me Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, Tirza. Look at these choices. You know, but when you see your name, I get excited when it says whosoever. I'm like, that's my name right there, whosoever. I claim that one. But, you know, to see your name in the Bible, you know, my, my grandson, Judah, you say something, Judah, he goes, Judah, that's my name. Where is it in the Bible? Okay, I just have to say this really quick. I will let you out on time. My grandson, Judah, is a genius. Seriously. Like, all of us are intimidated by him. I mean, his poor little brother, because he's just above average. But Judah is like genius. He's reading at high school level. He's eight years old. And he comes to Brian and he goes, Grandpa B, I just read the book of Revelation yesterday. Will you explain it to me? (laughs) He read Pilgrim's Progress. He liked it so much he made a game out of it. You know, like the slough of despondency. He made a game out of it. He wanted to play it with me. I was like, wow, this is a little intimidating. He's so brilliant. And I'm saying that for a reason. Um, Oh, yeah, because he sees his name in the Bible. So Brian's explaining the whole scenario of, of Revelation. He's like glued to it. Like, yes. And every time, you know, in the tribe of Judah, he's like, Judah, that's me. And Hudson's like, my name's not in the Bible. I said, but you're like named after this really great missionary to China. I am? What's his story? And, and his mom's like, Hudson, you know that story. I know, but I forgot because I'm not Judah. And I forget. You know, it's like, I know. I just spent three days with him. Can you tell? I'm like, I'm in love. I'm in love. And then, of course, <laughs> Evelyn, who's three, she's the one with the heart surgery. She's like our miracle and our only granddaughter. And she loves crowns. She's like got, I think, 10 crowns. And she was putting one on the other day. And I said, is that your crown too? And she's like, no, I took this from my girlfriend. Uh, she's got a little bit of this kleptomaniac problem. But, <laughs> you know, if you had heart surgery, maybe you would too. But think about these women. Their names are actually recorded in God's word because they wanted a portion. Look at how God goes beyond. They said, we want a portion in the land of promise. And what does God do? He writes their name twice in the word of God. Isn't that incredible? I mean, if you had a name like Hogla, I don't know. I mean, it's like, but it's there. Because they made claim to the promised land. And they received an inheritance among the tribes. And they honored their father. And they had a land to pass down to their children. Unlike the other tribes of Joseph that were unwilling to go up to the forest to clear a place, to go down to the valleys, to drive out the Canaanites and the chariots, these women asked for, received an inheritance, sought it out, laid claim. There is this danger of becoming complacent when it comes to the promises. And this happens when we allow the enemy to remain in our hearts. When we stop dealing with sin or even recognizing the signs of sin in our heart or life, when we start letting in little white lies 
or little tiny compromises, when we stop fighting for the land of promises. And what happens? We begin to complain like the tribes of Joseph. Because they weren't fighting for the land, they begin to complain. It's too small. The enemies have chariots. They're too strong for us. You know what? When you start complaining, it's because you've stopped fighting the enemy. Just think about that. Next time you want to complain. Complainers are people that rather put down, rather put down their brothers and sisters in Christ than fight against the true enemies. They'd rather complain against the work of God in their life and compare it to what other people have than fighting the enemy. We need to keep fighting the enemy. In fact, it tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that we are to do all things without murmuring and grumbling that we may become the children of God, light in a dark generation, holding fast to the word of God. But Ephraim would rather complain about the territory being too small, forest, too hard, not as good as what Judah got, than simply fighting the enemy. What is the remedy to complacency? It's to again seek the promises of God, to know the word and promises that are there, to not rest until God's word has been fulfilled to us and in us. And we have it in our possession so we can pass it on to the next generation. Now, Joshua 18, 1 through 10, we read that the tabernacle is set up at Shiloh. It's a national event. They all come together to set it up. It's put in the territory allotted to Ephraim. It will become the spiritual headquarters of Israel for a time. All the men of Israel are to go there three times a year, Passover, Pentecost, and at Sukkoth, or the Feast of Shelters. And the whole congregation is involved in this endeavor. Moving the tabernacle was another way to get those seven tribes that haven't claimed their land to leave Gilgal because they're still in this holy huddle where they don't want to leave. They just want to, you know, all settle in this tiny territory of Gilgal. But the rest of the land is already subdued. Judah has um, taken a huge portion. Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh have their portion settled in on the eastern plain of the Jordan. Ephraim and the other half of Manasseh have settled the northern part of the land. What remains is the territory above the tribes of Joseph and between the allotments of Joseph and Judah. The tribes that remain are Dan, Simeon, Benjamin, and four others, uh, Asher, Nephtali, Zebulon, and Issachar. The land has already been conquered. Their greatest enemies are gone. And Joshua rebukes these seven remaining tribes. How long will you neglect to go and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers has given you? Here was the land just waiting to be apportioned, waiting to be claimed, waiting to be taken. It was already given to them. Joshua instructs them, choose three men from each tribe. Go survey the remaining territory. Come back with the location you want. Then here in Shiloh, not in Gilgal, but here in Shiloh, we'll cast lots to see what territory you will receive. 
The text again makes it clear that the reason that the Levites do not have a tribal allotment, verse 7, is the priesthood of the Lord is their inheritance. Their reward possession is the service of the Lord. They are not to be in a holy huddle, but to spread throughout all of Israel to ensure the spiritual cooperation, condition, and concern of the people. But why did these tribes hesitate to take their possession? Perhaps it was they were comfortable where they were. Maybe they were afraid to settle in. Two, they didn't want to choose a territory because maybe they would like another territory better later. But they quite literally had to be pushed out of Gilgal by Joshua in order to take position, possession of the beauty and wealth that God had given them. Um, Jasmine and I, again, we were talking about quotes by Hudson Taylor, who my grandson was named after, who was a missionary to China. And God did a tremendous work through Hudson Taylor, um, which is still continuing. He was a missionary there at the turn of the century. And yet his work, there are still people who are being saved in China. And it can be directly um, correlated to the work of Hudson Taylor. But he said this, faith always involves a risk. Without a risk, a move, new territory, moving into the unknown, there is no need for faith. Sometimes what we're trying to do is create a faith-free relationship with God. We want something that's so safe that never involves a risk, never involves the unknown, never involves us having to absolutely trust God and have a wholehearted dependency on God. We want circumstances to come through. We want the savings account. We want all these props that we can depend on. We want the Gilgal. We want the holy huddle where we're totally safe. But God wants us to move out by faith into the new territory, to clear the forests away, to deal with the chariots, and to settle in. Why do we stop short of all God has for us? I was reading in the Open Bible the introduction to Ephesians, and I love this from the Open Bible. It says that Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, the epistle of Paul, is addressed to a group of believers who are rich beyond measure in Jesus Christ, yet living as beggars, and only because they are ignorant of the wealth. Since they have yet to accept their wealth, they relegate themselves to living as spiritual paupers. That's how the seven remaining tribes were. Think of it. Seven out of 12 tribes, more than half, were living in the promised land, but not in the promises of God. They were in the right place, but they weren't claiming territory. They weren't living by. They were surrounded by God's promises, but not laying claim and settling into them. In other words, they were going to, you know, it's like going to church and elbowing your neighbor, everything that the pastor says, that one's for you, that one's for you, that one's for you. When God's like, you know, that one's for you. This is for you. You know, sometimes we sit through a sermon and we think it's for everybody. Is it nice of the pastor to talk to the rest of the congregation? I've been thinking they needed that too. Instead of to realize the word of God is first and foremost for us. Until we lay claim to it, we cannot give it away to anybody else. Until we live the promises, until we receive the promises and we see them lived out, until we experience them, we cannot give them to others. 
We have to receive, settle in, live by them. And then we can give them to others. It is so possible to be like the Ephesians, to live in the wealth of Christ Jesus, all these promises, all that is ours through Christ Jesus, and not lay claim to it. And we can live like spiritual paupers rather than possessors of all that Christ has fought for. One intends and desires for us. Lay claim to it. Lay claim to the promises of God like Caleb and Aksa and the daughters of Zelophehad. Desire it. Know the promises of God and the gifts that God is offering through his word. Ask for them. Treasure them as the daughters of Zelophehad did. Move into them. Settle in them. Get rid of anything that would keep you from the promises of God. God wants you in his promises. He has conquered the land. And yes, it's going to take dependency on God. It's going to take prayer. It's going to take effort. It's going to take driving out the enemy. Yes, yes. But the promises of God are so worth it. It's your heritage. It's what you can pass down. It's what you can pass out. It's your wealth. It's your richness. It's your treasure. It's your glory. It's your distinction from the rest of the world. It's the promises of God. And you lay hold of them by faith and patience. You need to believe them and believe that they're yours, that you might receive them. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for my sisters. Lord, I know what it's like to live in the land of promise, but not lay claim, not believe that they're really for me, not take possession of them or be content with my allotment. So I'm not praying that Benjamin, I'm not praying that Dan, I'm not praying that the other tribes receive the promises. Oh God, may we be like Caleb where we want as much as we possibly can, that we might give them to others, that we might share, that we might bless. Lord, may we be people that first take the promises, Lord, claim them, that we might pass them down as a heritage to our children. Lord, like Caleb, that we might desire our tribe, our family, to be possessors of the promised land. Like we might be like Caleb, that we go from First, our children, to our family, to our nation. Our nation. Lord, that California, again, would become a, a, a state that depends. Lord, we have the name Sacramento. We, we have the name Santa Ana. We, have, we claim the saints, but we don't claim the promises of God. Lord, we pray for our state We pray for righteousness. We pray for the promises of God. Lord, we pray for the promises of God for our children. We pray for the promises of God for our family. We lay claim to them that we might give them to our family, that we might give them to those in our nation, that we might give them to those even in our state, Lord. Lord, may we become possessors of the promises that we might give them out that we might tell others about all that can be theirs through Christ Jesus. God, work this in us. 
Lord, return to us the thrill of your promises. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.